Psalm 44. Before I read it, I have a thank you card here to read from Paul and Mary Porter. It says this, Dear church family, Mary and I wish to thank everyone who contacted us, sent cards, and prayed for us during my surgery and ongoing recovery. The verse that we chose during this time was Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In Christ, Paul and Mary. So let's continue to pray for Paul as he continues to uh, recover in that. Let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into Psalm 44. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we have just sung, we pray that you would give us grace, give us strength to walk by faith and not by sight. And Father, even as we sing those truths triumphantly this evening, we know and would confess within our hearts how easy it is to walk by sight and not by faith. It is so easy to become distracted. It is so easy to become discouraged. But you call us to walk by faith. You've shown yourself to be faithful in the past and you will be faithful in the future for it is who you are. And we pray that we'd be encouraged in that even this evening as we look to Psalm 44, that you would be lifted up through your word and that you would work in each and every one of our lives as we'd be encouraged and challenged and changed for your glory. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 44. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days and days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out. For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, in the light of your countenance, because you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. And God, we boast all day long and praise your name forever. Selah. But you have cast us off and put us to shame. And you do not go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You've given us up like sheep intended for food and scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those all around us. 
You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples. My dishonor is continually before me, and the shame of my face has covered me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. But you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake! Why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise! Do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. Psalm 44 is a very interesting psalm. You probably noticed as we were working through that, there is a stark change in the middle of that psalm. In fact, it flips around 180 degrees. It completely changes the whole direction of the psalm in verse 9. What we'll come to see this evening as we work our way through this psalm is that Psalm 44 is the desperate cry of a humble man. He's a man who has come. He's, he's, he's humbled himself. In fact, men, a people who have come and humbled themselves before God, and they, they admit here that they have no idea what's going on. They have no idea why God is doing this. And yet, even in the end, they call on the mercy of God. They've not forgotten him. As we work our way through Psalm 44, we'll see in verses 1 to 3, what they heard, verses 4 to 8, what they have seen, and verses 9 to 26, what they feel. First thing we see in the first three verses is what we heard, what we heard. Starts out in verse 1, we have heard with our ears, O God. We have heard. Well, what have you heard? Who have you heard it from? Well, it's our fathers have told us. We've heard something. We've heard it from our fathers who've testified to us. And what did they testify of? The deeds that you did in their days, in days of old. The fathers are testifying to their sons of what God has done, of who God is. Verse 2 goes on. You drove out the nations with your hand. But them, our fathers, you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out. They did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, their fathers, nor did their own arms save them. It was your right hand, your arm, the light of your countenance, because you favored them. Immediately, as you look at those verses, your mind is probably drawn back to Joshua. We worked our way through Joshua earlier uh, this year, into the end of last year, the book of Joshua, the conquest of Canaan. And as you work your way through the book of Joshua, one thing comes up time and time again. 
It is the Lord who did this. The Lord delivered. The Lord did that. In fact, there's one, there's one point in the book of Joshua when there's a battle going on. And, and the Israelites have fought all day and then God sends hail down. And, and the book, the, the verse actually says, and more people were killed by God than were killed by the Israelites. It wants us to be clear, to understand this is God's doing. This is God's doing. Also throughout the book of Joshua, there's another theme that stands out. It's the theme of memorials, of altars, of statues, of of things to remember. All throughout the book, as God delivers, as God gives the victory, they set up a memorial. They remember what God has done. In fact, when you get to the end of the book of Joshua... We see the result of this. In verse 31, after after God has given them the land, and Joshua has led the people faithfully, he's pointed them to God, he's set up these altars, he's remembered uh, these memorials, he's reminded them time and time again of who God is, of who gave them the victory. And when you come to verse 31, it says this, Israel, uh, verse 31 of, of chapter 24, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. But it doesn't stop there. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Because they set up these memorials, because they remembered, because they told the next generation, the next generation was faithful. It was passed on. They remembered. I love that verse. What a testimony. All the days of Joshua, they served the Lord. And that'd be the heart cry of all of us, that that would be our testimony. That all of our days, those who know us, who come in contact with us, our children, our families, that they would know the Lord and serve us. And then after we are gone, that they would go on to know Him and to serve Him. And that's what we see exactly here. In fact, it's a direct result of that. Because this is exactly what they are referencing. They're referencing the, the conquest of Canaan. When it was God who gave them the land. It was God who gave it to them. In fact, they admit it was not our own sword. It was not their own arm, their own strength. It was your right hand, your arm, the light of your countenance because you favored them. You gave them the land because you chose to give them the land. You gave them the land because you promised you would give them the land. Their good fortune was God's doing because God chose them. Verse 2, you drove out the nations with your hand, but then you planted. You uprooted the enemies who were there, and you planted your people. You put them where you wanted them. You fulfilled your promise. That's what we've heard. That's what we've been told. But then secondly, verse 4 to 8 goes, what we have seen. Notice the change in verse 4 from what we've heard, what we've been told of of what our fathers did to verse 4. You are my king, O God. That's personal. Now it's moving from past, what you've done, to present, who you are. You are my king, O God. 
Command victories for Jacob, for your people. Continue to give victory. Through you, we will push down our enemies. Through you, through your name, we will trample those who rise up against us. We will go on conquering. Through you. Not through us. Verse 6, I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. It's very similar to Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's also a reference back to Joshua. There's a specific battle in Joshua where they conquer this large army who had chariots that they didn't have and and they could have kept those horses and they could have kept those chariots and it could have made them so much stronger and God tells them to destroy the horses and destroy the chariots. Why? Because you don't need horses and you don't need chariots because you have me. Because I am your God. That's what the psalmist here is admitting. I don't need my bow. I don't need my sword. That is not why I will have the victory. It's because you are my God. It's because you will give it to me. Just as you did to my fathers. Not only will you, but you have. You have saved us from our enemies. You have put to shame those who've hated us. I've seen it with my own eyes. You've done this. It's happened already. Because of what I've heard, because of what I've seen, because of what I know to be true, verse 8, and God, we boast all day long. We don't boast in our strength. We don't boast in our skill with a sword or with a bow because we recognize, we know that it's not my skill with a sword or a bow that got me this victory. It's God. He gave it to me. And so it is in God that I will boast. And I will praise your name forever. Selah. And there's a break at this point. In verses 1 to 8, we see confidence. If we hadn't read the rest of the psalm to this point, and and we were going to try and guess where does the psalmist go to here, go from here, probably say he keeps going up he keeps trusting in God he keeps he keeps his confidence building but there's a stark change in verse 9 it goes from confidence in the first eight verses to bewilderment in verses 9 to the end of the chapter to the end of the psalm there's a clear change in fact what we'll come to see as we read these verses is that this psalm is written in the wake of a large defeat. Just like we saw throughout Joshua. As we've seen throughout much of the Old Testament, after many of big victories, they will sing a song of praise to God, recognizing God has given us this victory. This is a song not of praise, but of bewilderment after a defeat. Notice the change in verse 9. But you have cast us off and put us to shame. That's the same language he uses in verse 7. 
We've seen this before. You have saved us from our enemies. You've put to shame those who hated us. But now you've cast us off and you've put us to shame. You've put us to shame. You do not go out with our armies. When we go to war, we're going without you in our own strength. We face defeat. You make us to turn back from the enemy. Because you are not with us, we don't have strength to stand against them. We retreat. Those who take, who, who hate us, have taken spoil for themselves. This is where we see that there's a defeat. They've been defeated by their enemies. The spoil is for the victors. The spoil is not what they are taking. The spoil is what's being taken from them. They've been defeated. They've been conquered. They've lost a large battle. And they are bewildered. In fact, verse 11 puts it in very strong language. You have given us up like sheep intended for food. So often God is pictured as a tender shepherd who cares for his sheep. We think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. They have that same picture. Here, God is a shepherd. They are sheep. But instead of a tender shepherd who cares for his sheep, this is someone who's, who's they're, they're expendable. They're intended for food. They're not cared for in that way. The illustration is completely flipped. They don't feel like sheep who are loved, but sheep who are disposable. You've given us up like sheep intended for food. And you've scattered us among the nations. Verse 12 adds insult on top of injury. You sell your people for next to nothing. You've not even given us up for anything good, for any, anything that we can see, that we can understand. It's just, it's next to nothing. You're not enriched by selling them, your people. And you make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those all around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples, hardly even worth a thought or a mention. We are nothing to them. And my dishonor is continually before me, and the shame of my face has covered me. Because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us. At verse 17, this is where it gets really interesting. Because you see, we've seen psalms like this before. David has, has been in many psalms like this before. Well, he'll start by, by admitting who God is. He'll admit his sin and the consequences that he's facing. He'll ask God for deliverance and he'll end with hope. We've seen many psalms where the psalmist knows that the, the trial that he is facing is because of the sin that he has committed 
It's a direct consequence. But that's not the case here. They've not faced defeat because they disobeyed God. This isn't like Ai, where Achan had stolen, he disobeyed, and there was a direct result for that, where men died, where they faced defeat. This isn't like that. There is no known sin going on here. It's not that they abandoned God and they're facing the consequences of it. In fact, what they say is, we've been faithful. We've been faithful, so why, why have we been defeated? It's not an issue of sin. God is not punishing his people, so why are they facing this? All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. It's not us that forgot you. We have not dealt falsely with your covenant. We haven't broken the covenant that you made. And that this is the question of this psalm. This is why they are so bewildered. What is going on? Our heart is not turned back. Nor have our steps departed from your way. We have been faithful. Just as our fathers were faithful. We have clung to your promises. And yet, even in the midst of that, you have severely broken us in the place of jackals. You've covered us with the shadow of death. Psalm 23, you promised to be with us in the shadow of death. But this isn't just something that we're walking through. This is something that you have brought. You are not just walking with us through this valley. You have put us here. Why? Why have you brought the shadow of death upon us? If we had forgotten the name of God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? Would you not tell us, go and take care of the problem? It's over there like you did with Achan? There is no sin that they are aware of. You know the secrets of our hearts. If there is sin, deal with it, but give us an answer. Yet, despite the fact that we have not forgotten you, we have not turned from you, we have not broken your covenant, yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That goes back to that verse we just saw, verse 11. You've given us up like sheep intended for food. Sheep intended to be slaughtered and eaten. That's what we are accounted as. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. For your sake. Not because, of our, not, not because we have sinned. For your sake. We are killed all day long. We're going to come back to that verse. That's probably a familiar verse. You probably, that probably stands out to you. You've probably heard that before. And we'll come back to that. Verse 23 then. This is their prayer. Awake. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Don't abandon us. Don't go back on your word. 
Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. We are beaten down. We cannot go any lower. So arise, God. Arise for our help. Redeem us from your mercy's sake. I find that interesting. Verse 26. They've already admitted, as they've recognized in this psalm, that this is God's doing. And yet they turn to God for deliverance. Arise for our help. Redeem us. That's another interesting choice of word. Redeem us. Don't, it's, not, it's not save us from this calamity, because the calamity's over. They've lost the battle. People have died. They've been defeated. It's not save us from this. It's too late to be saved. Redeem us. Reclaim us, your people. For your mercy's sake. For your mercy's sake. That's an interesting word there, too. Your mercy's sake. In fact, as I was studying today, I was actually surprised by that ending, redeem us for your mercy's sake. It seems in the larger context of this psalm that they would say, redeem us for your faithfulness's sake. Remember the promise that you've made. Don't go back on your word. You are faithful and so redeem us. So I kind of dug into that word mercy there. I'm not, I'm, I'm not in Hebrew, never taken Hebrew. It's a word you might recognize. It's the word hesed. And it is a word that is tied to faithfulness. It's a word that's tied to, to the idea of faithfulness, to the idea of love, to the idea of covenant. In fact, in many places in our Bibles, that word is translated steadfast love. Your steadfast love. Redeem us for your steadfast love. It is God's faithfulness, but it's not just God's faithfulness. It's God's faithfulness. It's God's love. It's God's covenant keeping. Because God's faithfulness here is not just rooted in the idea that God has a promise to keep. They're not just saying, God, you made a promise. Keep that promise. God doesn't love them just because he made a promise. Well, you know, back in Genesis 12, I did make a promise, so I guess I have to keep it. That's not the idea. It's not God's promise that binds him to this. God is faithful, not because he has to be faithful. He's faithful because that is who he is. He's faithful because he is a faithful God. He loves them because they are his people, not because he has to love them. He chooses to love them. And that's what they are communicating here. Redeem us, reclaim us, your people, for your mercy's sake. 
Redeem us because you have not changed, because for your love for us has not changed, because your promises have not changed. Because your love is steadfast. The psalmist here doesn't know what God is doing. But he knows who God is. And that's what he clings to. I want to go back to that verse. Verse 22. For your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That verse might catch your attention. It's from Romans 8.36. Well, actually, it's from here in Romans 8.36. But it's also found in Romans 8.36. So turn over there with me, if you will. In the context of the way it's used here in Romans 8.26, I think this principle is applicable here in Psalms as well. It's the same truth that's being communicated in both places. See, in Romans 8.36, starting in verse 35, Paul says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter? What Paul is saying is, is in that, even in the context of Psalm 44, even in that context, where we have been faithful and yet we are facing defeat. Even in tribulation, even in distress, even in persecution, even in famine, even in nakedness, even in peril, even in sword, in the sword, even in all of those things. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Even in defeat, we are more than conquerors. Even in the midst of of persecutions that you do not have any idea or understand what is going on, even in that, you are more than a conqueror in Christ. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even when we are being killed all the day long for the sake of Christ, even when we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, even then we are more than conquerors. Even then there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, Christ. Jesus our Lord. Even then. I think there's a reason in Psalm 8 why Paul goes to Psalm, and in Romans 8, why Paul goes to Psalm 44. Because the idea is the exact same. God is still in control. Even when you don't know who, what, what God is doing, cling to who God is. God had made promises to his people, Israel. He did promise them that they would flourish if they obeyed. I mean, think about that. 
Facing a defeat. It's one thing to face a defeat at AI and then to find out, well, we were being disobedient. We didn't know that at the time, but there was someone who was disobedient. There's a consequence to that. I can wrap my mind around that. I can understand. What I can't understand is when we are being faithful. And even then, we fail. Not because we have done something wrong, but because God has put us there. God made us be defeated. And it wasn't an accident. It wasn't an accident. Just because you can't understand it doesn't mean that God is not doing something in it. I think there's two points of application from this psalm. First one is this, goes back to the very beginning of the psalm. Do your kids, does the next generation, do those you you know and you love and you care about, do they know of your great God from your mouth? In the midst of, of this bewilderment, confusion, not understanding what God is doing, what do they go back to? What do they remember? It's the truths that their fathers told them. You've told us this. We've heard it from our fathers. We know who you are. We see that all throughout the book of Joshua. Joshua continually going back, reminding the people. And the reality is that if the next generation does not rejoice in the Lord with us, they will not rejoice in the Lord without us. We must testify to our children, to our grandchildren to our friends, to our family. We must testify of who God is and what he has done. There's no testimony that's too small. Tell people what God has done. Tell people what God is doing. They need to hear. So that's number one. Speak up. Talk about your God. Talk about even the little things in your life that he has done. Because those little things over a long period add up to a faithful God. Secondly, it goes along with the song that we sang this evening. Walk by faith and not by sight. Do your circumstances affect your faith or does your faith interpret your circumstances? It's okay to be confused. It's okay not to understand because we don't see the big picture. God does. He knows exactly what he's doing. But it's not okay to accuse God. Don't doubt his goodness. Don't doubt his faithfulness. Don't doubt his steadfast love. Just because you don't understand doesn't change who God is. I think of many times with my kids when we're getting ready to go somewhere, and I'll tell them to put on a jacket. 
And they'll go, well, why, Dad? And they'll get all upset. I don't want to put on a jacket. I don't want to wear that jacket. I see the bigger picture. I know we're going to be outside. I know it's going to be cold. I know they're going to need a jacket. They don't see it. They don't understand it. It makes me hot right now while we're getting dressed inside. That's okay. It won't make you hot in five minutes when we step out that door. You may not understand it now, but you need it. There's many times like that, that probably even in your parenting or, or your relationships you can think back on. How much more does God, who's in complete control, see and know and is directing the little things in our life? God is always in control. He's always only in control. Even when bad things happen that we don't understand. In fact, there's two illustrations I can think of as we're closing that at the time didn't make any sense. And yet looking back, you can see what God was doing. The first is a well-known story. It's Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Yalderen. As they went to the jungle and were killed, did that make sense? These five young men who would pack up everything and move to the middle of the jungle to tell people about Jesus wouldn't it make sense in our thinking that, that God would give them just incredible strength and power? That as they go, that, that whole jungle would hear the gospel and get saved? They gave up so much, doesn't it make sense? And yet they get there, and what happens? We know the story. They're killed before they ever re even really get to interact with the Indians. That doesn't make any sense. They were being faithful. Why would God do that? And yet, thankfully, in that situation, we get to see the end. Where that tribe was reached for the gospel because of that, through that. The other example is an example that really my high school Bible teacher told us about in high school, and it had a big impact on my life. It's the story of William Borden. I don't know if you know William Borden or not, but he was growing up in a family that had a lot of money. He graduated college as a millionaire. He could have taken over the family business. He could have been set for life. But he renounced all of that and chose to go to the mission field instead. He turned down his inheritance, went across the world. He was going to go to China and tell Muslims about Jesus Christ. And he got to Egypt to study the language. And as he's there in Egypt and he's studying and he's learning, before he ever even gets to China, he dies of spinal meningitis. And we hear stories like that and we think, what are you doing, God? Here's a man who had resources beyond our imagination who gave all of that up to go tell people about Jesus Christ and died before he ever got there? He 
He wrote in his journal before he died, you've probably heard this at least, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. In fact, there were many missionaries that through that were encouraged to go to the field. There was a missionary surge following that, following his death. Even in that, God was doing something good, something so much greater than he could imagine. And we see these situations on a, on a grand scale. These, these great missionaries who are turning down everything to go for Christ, and we see all that, and, and we get the perspective of now looking back and saying, okay, yes, God was good in that. I, I can see that. And yet we struggle with the little things day in and day out. If we can trust God with the big things, why can't we trust him with the little things? If I can trust God with my eternal security, why can't I trust God with my problems today? God is faithful. As we see here in Psalm 44, even when I don't understand it, even when it makes absolutely zero sense to me or to you, even then, God is faithful. God is good. God loves us. God is merciful. And he's working all things for our good and his glory. And so may we walk by faith and not by sight. May our faith interpret our circumstances and not the other way around. With that, we're going to transition to a time of prayer.